Hi, this is Katina, Debbie Dorian's best friend from episode 64, and you are listening to California Dreamin' on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Creating a podcast is not that simple. It's more than just recording yourself and uploading it. To get your show to be everything you want it to be, you're going to need a little more than that. You need easy and reliable hosting so your time can be spent creating your content. The most accurate download stats so you know that you're reaching the audience that you're wanting to. And a web page that makes setting up totally easy on you and won't take up too much of your valuable time. And Blueberry offers all of this and more for hosts and aspiring hosts alike. Simple media hosting, a fully integrated WordPress website with their PowerPress sites. So if you already have a podcast or you've always dreamed about starting one, head over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to sign up and the first month is on us. The Blueberry support team is available to walk you through the steps of migrating your show without losing any subscribers or to get you started in the process of launching your new show. With the first month for free using promo code DREAM, you've got no excuses. So let's get started. First, I would like to take the time to thank everyone for continuing to support California Dreaming on social media by following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, as well as those who have left reviews for the show on Apple Podcasts or whichever platforms you listen to the show on by also spreading the word about California Dreaming by recommending us in listening groups and, of course, supporting us on Patreon as well. There are currently more than a dozen exclusive bonuses on Patreon, and for as little as a dollar a month, you can gain access to all of those episodes. For some reason, in episode 79, I totally spaced on thanking those who joined Patreon prior to the last episode. So this week, I would like to thank Jillian F., Jen T, Marva, Juliet K, Brooke A, Emma T, Marella S, Jason M, Liesel, Jordan L, Joyce L, DDJ, Andy S, and Andrea T. And I would also like to thank Jen M for raising your support a couple of tears. And if you would like to make a one-time donation to help support California Dreaming, you can do that too through PayPal using our email at californiapod at gmail.com. Thank you again for all of your support. I need to first say that I was reminded of the story some time back, but I can't remember who it was that sent me the email recommending this one. But if you're listening and you were the one who contacted me sometime last year, message me again if you can so I can thank you in the next episode. As I got ready to research the subject of today's show, I thought about certain jobs out there that are the unlikeliest of places one might think that their lives are in danger, as this episode involves workplace hazards. I looked up a list of dangerous jobs, and USA Today had a pretty comprehensive article that listed the 25 most dangerous jobs in the United States. From least to most, they involved heating and air conditioning, refrigeration, installation, painters, construction, maintenance, industrial machinery workers, and this last one actually just happened a few days ago here in Los Angeles when a man was inside a metal cutting machine doing maintenance work when it somehow was turned on and he was killed. 
electricians, construction equipment operators, athletes, coaches, umpires, and related workers, telecommunication line workers, landscaping, lawn service, and groundwork employees, taxi drivers and chauffeurs, general maintenance and repair workers, electrical and power line workers, police and sheriff patrol officers, construction workers, mechanics, installers, repairers, miscellaneous agricultural workers, construction trade and extraction work, farmers and ranchers, drivers who work in sales, truck drivers, iron and steel workers, refuse and recycling collectors, roofers, airline pilots and flight engineers, fishers and related fishing workers, and the most dangerous job in the United States is logging. And just out of curiosity, I looked up the most dangerous jobs in the world, and the Reader's Digest had a list, and they were mostly the same as the list I just mentioned, but there were a few that weren't, including underwater welding, oiled field workers, coal mining, veterinarian, bull riding, stunt women and stunt men, and private investigators. Today, we're going to talk about a job that unexpectedly turned dangerous. Nobody heading into work that day ever thought it would be their last. In today's 80th episode of California Dreaming, The Tale of the Sausage King. The San Francisco Gate published an article about a very popular local sausage factory in San Leandro, California back in 1999. It read, Pia Santos had no idea 78 years ago when she recreated for friends an old linguiça recipe she had learned in her native Portugal, that her recipe would lead to a thriving family business prospering well into the 21st century. Linguiça, a Portuguese sausage heavily flavored with garlic, is used in the traditional soup caldo verde. Introduced by immigrants, it became popular with non-Portuguese Americans who enjoyed it as a breakfast and sandwich meat. Soon, Friends of Pia and her husband, Antonio, were sending the couple so many requests for linguiça that they began producing it in the basement of their modest San Leandro home. Word of mouth generated even more orders while Antonio began selling the sausages at the now long-gone 6th Street Farmer's Market in Oakland. Business began to boom. As luck would have it, an empty lot next door to the couple's home went up for sale in the late 1920s. Pia decided to purchase the land with revenue from the basement production and eventually built a small factory that would serve as the headquarters and main production facility for the Santos Linguisa factory. The business became a family affair, employing four or five relatives, including Pia's daughter, Laura. In the 1930s, Pia expanded the line with Morcella, or Morcella, I'm not sure how it's pronounced, and that's a Portuguese blood sausage made with a mixture of cow blood, onions, and spices. When Herman Alexander, grandson of Pia and general overseer since the 1950s, died in 1993, the factory was shut down, much to the dismay of longtime customers. People went crazy, said Stuart Alexander, Herman's son, and Pia's great-grandson. They wouldn't stop calling, Some even called the Chamber of Commerce to find out what happened. Succumbing to public pressure, Stewart reopened the factory after four months. 
Business continues to be brisk in the late 1990s. The Santos Linguiza factory continues to cater to a sizable Portuguese clientele, as well as local restaurants and businesses, such as Lucky and Domino's Pizza. Orders pile in daily from across the nation. Not bad, considering the company has never advertised, relying strictly on word-of-mouth publicity. Stewart credits the company's success to the hard work of his ancestors, the high-quality products used, and to a good recipe from the old country. Pia's original recipe is used. The linguiça has never contained preservatives and are made daily from fresh, corn-fed pork. The linguiça-making techniques is the same his great-grandmother used. The pork is cut, ground and marinated before being stuffed into natural casings and smoked with oak for 12 hours in two 8-foot by 15-foot smokers. Orders are shipped within a week and in as little as 48 hours locally. Stewart is determined to see the company through its 100th year anniversary. This should be a cinch because it is the food you make friends with. You give someone our linguisa and you have a friend for life. Then the article gives you the location of the factory and its operating hours and a phone number to place your orders. If all of this sounds good to you, well, maybe not all of you, but at least some of you, and you'd like to look them up, don't bother. Just a little more than a year after this glowing article was published, Santos Linguisa Factory would be no more. You may have been able to guess that, seeing as we're talking about the business here on our show. But hey, you know, the last family-run food service business we talked about here Zan Cow Chicken, despite the family discord and tragedy, remains thriving to this day. But not so much for Santos Linguisa Factory. It would not survive the cacophony it would be faced with. It would not survive to see its 100th anniversary, just another two years away from today as we discuss this story. Stuart Charles Alexander was born March 22, 1961, the middle son of Shirley May and Herman Tweedy Alexander. His dad, who went by the nickname Tweedy, and we are going to call him that for the purposes of this episode, he had inherited and successfully ran Santos Linguisa, the factory that his Aunt Pia had founded, and Tweedy had done so for many, many years. He was very well known in the business world, both locally and nationally, and as a businessman, he was known to be smart, shrewd, and incisive. And most of all, he was known for producing perhaps the finest sausages in the Bay Area, possibly in all of California, if not across the nation. Tweedy ran the family sausage factory like a well-oiled machine. He crossed his T's. He dotted his eyes, and he had little, if any, issues with his factory not being in compliance with state or federal regulations that govern food production plants. Tweedy had also been preparing and mentoring his son Stuart for many years to eventually take charge of the business when the time came. But that wasn't exactly the way things were supposed to have gone. Stuart, as I said, was the middle of three boys. The reins of the business were to have been handed to the eldest, Stefan, 
but tragedy had struck. Stefan was killed in a motorcycle accident on May 25, 1977 at the age of 18. And according to Stuart's mother, Stuart never got over the loss of his brother. They were very close, only two years apart in age. So Tweedy was left having to hand the business over to Stuart, the next eldest. But Tweedy, it seemed, had very little faith in his middle boy. As a matter of fact, from all accounts, he had no faith in him. And it does not seem like Stuart had any faith in himself either, as he was suddenly put into this position of now being the eldest, and he wasn't ready for it. Would he be able to fill his father's or even his brother's shoes? It was a tall order. It's been said that Tweedy was an incredibly abusive father, both verbally and emotionally, and Stuart took the brunt of it, having been reminded often by his father that he would never amount to anything. Do you think perhaps if a son or daughter is told that often enough by a parent, that it can quite possibly become true? Kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy? I tend to think so. Not always, but it can't possibly help if a parent is constantly berating their children either. It is important to understand what the Santos Linguisa Sausage Factory meant to the Alexander family. Each and every single person in the family, all of their lives, their entire world revolved around it. They lived and breathed Santos Linguisa as it provided everything for them. It was everyone's place of employment. It was their entire income. It was their entire livelihood. The factory was truly the center of their world, and it was what they were known for. It was their identity. It was of the utmost importance to the family. They built their reputation on the quality of their product, and even though they were just one factory in San Leandro, California, they were known across the United States for producing arguably the best linguisa in the country. The family was immensely proud of their product. They were proud of their family name, their history, and their legacy. And this is how it was for Stuart growing up. However, the relationship between middle son and father was not an easy one, though Stuart very much idolized his father. Tweedy was very well-known and well-liked in the community in which he lived, worked, and operated his business. He was known to be generous and affable, and people very much wanted to be his friend. And Stuart, as well, he worked hard to win his father's love and approval. Everything Stuart and his siblings had was not simply handed to them. They were required to work for the things that they wanted. Everything had to be earned. As Stuart got older, many of Tweedy's traits and characteristics that made him a success Stuart attempted to emulate, but he never really was able to do so. If Tweedy needed to make a change or bend one way or another for the sake of the betterment of the business, he was flexible and willing to do so in order to make sure Santos Linguisa would be able to continue operating unimpeded, like the well-oiled machine that he wanted and needed it to be. 
He never lost sight of what their goals were, to keep producing the best linguisa for their clientele. Stewart was incapable of conducting business in this manner. Strong, amicable relationships were difficult for Stewart to cultivate and maintain, and the ultimate goal of continuing to preserve and uphold the family business would not be his immediate priority. Doing things his way was all that mattered, and he would not be made to divert from his course, no matter what. And once Stefan died and Stuart became the heir apparent to the family business, it was clear that Tweedy had little confidence that his son would be able to carry on the business or the legacy to the high standards that Tweedy expected. But he had no choice. In 1971, when Stuart was 10, his parents divorced. And according to his mom, her ex-husband was particularly hard on Stuart, even before the eldest son had passed away. Tweedy expected a lot of him. His father was very demanding. He constantly yelled. And Stuart had so much to live up to. During the summers and on weekends when Stuart worked at the factory, the smallest mistakes would send Tweedy into a tirade. And the disillusion of his parents' marriage only exasperated the situation. It's believed that the combination of all these factors in Stuart's background as he was growing up planted the seeds of what would become a tremendous amount of rage and resentment deep within Stuart that, when triggered, would result in angry, violent interactions with others. And this would date back to the time when he was an adolescent. Those who knew Stuart described him as belligerent and confrontational. In 1996, he had an argument with an elderly neighbor that eventually led Stuart to being arrested and charged with assault and battery when Stuart physically attacked and beat the neighbor. And Stuart's combative nature carried over into his business practices. He did not like being told what to do and was described by at least one person who interacted with him regularly as being anti-authority. Stewart had a way of doing things, and it was the only way that he would be doing things, so much so that it was like a fixation. He was rigid, and he was stubborn. Tweedy would pass away after battling an illness in May of 1993, though I could not find any details or articles about his death. And when he died... Santos Linguisa Sausage Factory closed its doors, much to the dismay of their loyal customers, who had so very much enjoyed the Linguisa sausages for decades. For Stewart, the feelings about the factory were a mixed bag. On one hand, he had pretty much been told his entire life that he could never live up to the legacy and the reputation of the family business or the family name. He was told that he would never amount to anything. He was always put down, criticized, and berated by his father, who Stuart tried so hard to please, to try and prove himself. But nothing was ever good enough. Stuart was never able to measure up to his father's standards. His death left Stuart in a very tumultuous place in life. According to his mom, once Tweedy died, Stuart did not want to ever go back to that factory. As far as he was concerned, 
Santos Languisa could die right along with his dad for all he cared. But it tore him apart at the same time. It caused him a great deal of anguish as to what steps he should take next. This was the family legacy. The sausage was so unique and so loved by so many. The demand for him to reopen the factory was high. But at the same time, when Tweedy was on his deathbed, until his very last breath, he refused to tell Stuart the sausage recipe. Stuart would eventually come to terms with it. He decided that carrying on the family business was the right thing to do. So four months after Tweedy's death, Stuart resurrected Santos Linguisa Sausage Factory. There was this part of Stuart that, even though his father was gone, he still had this need to prove to him and himself that he was capable of honoring the family tradition and the family name. Stuart Alexander was now the sausage king of San Leandro, and he would operate Santos Linguisa Factory exactly how he saw fit. The family business had been thriving for decades. They had not changed a thing about how they operated pretty much since day one, and he intended to continue running the business the way it had been, as Stuart saw absolutely no reason to change a thing. For a time, Stuart did seem to emulate his father in the business world. At least he tried to. And it kind of worked for him for a while. So much so that he even ran for mayor of San Leandro in 1998, though his bid for the office would prove unsuccessful. And it would be that side of him that his father would point to as being his biggest character flaw that bubbled to the surface that he was incapable of living up to his father's expectations. I will get more into his mayoral run a little bit later. Something else happened in 1993, along with Tweedy's death, that shook the meat industry to its core in the United States. It was the -the Jack-in-the-Box E. coli outbreak. If you have not heard of Jack-in-the-Box... It is a major fast food restaurant chain founded in 1951 in San Diego, California. There are currently about 2,200 locations that are primarily located on the west coast of the United States, but there are locations in Arizona, Colorado, New Mexico, Texas, Louisiana, Tennessee, North Carolina, Missouri, Indiana, and Ohio. And a fun fact I discovered while researching, Jack of the Box was actually the first major restaurant chain to utilize the two-way intercom system in drive-thrus, where previously, vehicles going in the drive-thrus would go directly up to the window to speak to the employee. Anyway, so there was this E. coli outbreak in the United States in which 732 people became infected with the bacteria, which led to the deaths of four children and left 178 others with permanent kidney and brain damage. E. coli is a bacteria that is found in the lower intestines of warm-blooded organisms, and most strains are harmless. It's very complicated scientific jargon to discuss, so for the sake of us who aren't so fluent in science speak, 
especially myself, I'm going to try to dumb it down as much as possible. There are strains of E. coli that are infectious and potentially deadly. Strains which can lead to gastroenteritis, urinary tract infections, neonatal meningitis, and Crohn's disease, with symptoms including abdominal cramping, diarrhea, and vomiting. Children are the most vulnerable and the most likely to die as a result of being infected. The E. coli outbreak in 1993 was a strain called O157H7, and it is classified as a bioterrorism agent. When one becomes infected with a strain, it causes the destruction of red blood cells, which then obstructs the body's filtering system and the kidneys. And this, in turn, leads to hemolytic uremic syndrome, or HUS, the destruction of blood platelets, anemia, kidney failure, and can affect other organs with very small blood vessels like the brain and the heart. This outbreak was linked to undercooked burger patties in 73 jack-in-the-box restaurants in California, Idaho, Washington, and Nevada. Though this was not the first E. coli O157H7 outbreak, it is by far one of the most well-known foodborne illness outbreaks in American history. The investigation into the outbreak revealed that the cause of the contamination was Jack in the Box's special promotion at the time on their Monster Burger, which was being advertised as being so good it's scary, and it was selling at a special low price. The demand for the Monster Burger became so high that restaurants began serving the burger without it having been cooked long enough or bringing the internal temperature of the beef patty to a temperature high enough to kill the bacteria strain. The parent company of Jack in the Box placed the blame on their meat supplier, Vons, for the outbreak. But the investigation found that Jack in the Box, specifically the ones in the state of Washington, failed to comply with state laws that required patties to be cooked to an internal temperature of 155 degrees Fahrenheit or 68 degrees Celsius. This is the temperature required to kill E. coli. For some reason, the federal standard at the time had the temperature set to 140 degrees Fahrenheit or 60 degrees Celsius, and this was the guideline that jack-in-the-boxes in Washington were going by. If the restaurant had followed state regulations, the E. coli outbreak would not have occurred. A follow-up investigation conducted by the Centers for Disease Control found that five slaughterhouses in the United States and one in Canada as being the most likely sources of the contaminated meat, and it was animal feces contamination at the time of slaughter that was the cause. Five years later, Jack in the Box's parent company accepted a settlement of $58.5 million from nine meat suppliers. Six-year-old Lauren Rudolph of Southern California died on December 28, 1992 from complications caused by E. coli, which was later traced to this specific outbreak. Two-year-old Michael Knoll from Tacoma, Washington, died on January 22, 1993. Two-year-old Selena Shribs from Mount Lake Terrace, Washington, died on January 28, 1993. And 17-month-old Riley Detweiler of Bellingham, Washington, died on February 20, 1993. 
but he was one that had not actually eaten any of the contaminated burger patties from Jack in the Box. He was infected as a result of a secondary contact with another child he was in daycare with, whose parents, both of whom worked at Jack in the Box, had even suspected that their son might be sick with E. coli prior to him having tested positive for the disease, but sent him to daycare anyway without telling the staff because they did not want him to be sent home. The 1993 E. coli outbreak led to significant changes in both the beef industry and the food safety industry. As a result of the outbreak, E. coli was elevated to a reportable disease at the state health departments across the nation. The Food and Drug Administration raised the recommended internal temperatures for cooked beef patties from 140 to 155 degrees Fahrenheit, or 60 to 68 degrees Celsius. The United States Department of Agriculture, or the USDA Food and Safety Inspection Service, introduced safe food handling precaution labels to be placed on packaged raw meat and poultry sold in grocery stores, as well as a campaign to educate consumers about the risks of undercooked burger patties. They also implemented testing for E. coli in ground meat and funding was provided for research into reducing E. coli 0157H7 in cattle and slaughterhouses. And the Jack in the Box restructured their corporate operations and set new food safety standards that were implemented across the entire fast food industry. As you can imagine, the E. coli outbreak resulted in significant changes in the meat production industry. And this, of course, would impact Stuart Alexander and his Linguisa factory. And of course, changes can often be costly to implement. And those in the industry lobbied hard against the changes, even the safe food handling warning labels that I mentioned earlier. But the impact that the 1993 E. coli outbreak had on the industry was permanent. It was a wake-up call, and the USDA was going to make sure nothing of that magnitude would ever happen again. And from how I've described Stuart Alexander, his personality, his quick temper, his resistance to change, and being told what to do, you can probably guess that he is not going to respond well to the new and more stringent regulations that were put into place following the E. coli outbreak. Meanwhile, not too far away from San Leandro, in the city of Alameda, lived a woman named Jean Hillary. Like Stewart, she was very well liked in her community. She was like the neighborhood mom, sweet, caring, outgoing, and she very much cared about her family and friends. Those who knew her would say that she was just a really great friend and neighbor. Once Jean, a single mom, was done raising her kids and they were all grown up and out on their own, she decided to go back to college and try to get into a better job. She was offered an entry-level position working for the USDA as a supply clerk, and she was eventually promoted to the position of meat safety compliance officer, which was a huge step up for her. And at the time, Jean was the only woman in California to hold that position. According to her daughter, the job came so naturally to her because it was really an extension of who she was as a person. She cared about people. She cared about health. 
safety, and people's well-being. And working as a compliance officer to her was so very important to make sure that those who work in meatpacking and production were abiding by industry standards to ensure public health and safety, to avoid another jack-in-the-box debacle. It was her job to make sure that when violations are discovered and citations are issued, that those who are in violation implement the required changes to bring their factories or production plants up to code. By no means is the job of compliance officer easy. Nobody likes it when it's time for inspections, but you know, if your place is on the up and up, then there isn't really anything to worry about. But once violations are uncovered, there is the very real possibility that a business can be forced to shut down production immediately, which of course can be a huge financial hit, especially for the smaller family-owned businesses. I regularly see public notices online about local restaurants being shut down for one reason or another, and most of them reopen within a day once they've cleared up their violations because they are losing money every minute that they aren't open. And as much as food production plants and factories don't care for inspections, they certainly don't like being cited for violations, and they really don't like being shut down. And this can lead to potential conflict between compliance officers and meat manufacturers. And, well, since Tweedy's death and since Stewart took over operations at the Linguisa factory, they had not been doing very well when it came to safety inspections and compliance. As a matter of fact, the violations began piling up, and Stewart could not be less interested in bringing his factory up to code. Remember, he is a man that does not like being told what to do, and he does not like change. By the time the summer of 2000 rolled around, Jean was assigned to investigate Santos Linguisa factory. Stewart had been at odds with inspectors for several months by that time, as they would come into the factory and issue him citations for various violations. This would incite Stewart. He'd lose his temper and kick the inspectors out of the factory and off the property. What this meant, though, by not allowing his factory to be under inspection, he must immediately cease all production and shut down. If he continues to operate, he will be doing so illegally. Stuart Alexander and the Santos Linguisa Sausage Factory was effectively shut down by the USDA safety inspectors once he asked them to leave the premises. In early 2000, when inspectors were sent to the factory, many of them were young and somewhat new to the job. They would all be chased off by Stuart, as he was quick to yell and intimidate them, and they were unable to do their work. So a veteran inspector named Don Pardini was sent to try and deal with him in January of 2000. The violations he was finding were stemming from the changes that needed to be implemented in the wake of the E. coli outbreak. Many meat manufacturers resisted the new and required changes, and Stewart was definitely one of them. The inspector ended up shutting Stewart's factory down temporarily after his inspection found that equipment was not being properly cleaned and that Stewart had falsified a sanitation report. Don Pardini tried to explain to Stewart that these violations were relatively minor and the fix was simple. Just clean the equipment and open back up. 
but Stuart just could not handle this. He went off the rails, began cursing at Don. These new regulations are BS. He just lost it. And this was just the first inspection under the new standards. As time went on, the inspections needed to be conducted on a routine basis to oversee that Stewart was complying with USDA standards on a day-to-day basis. And along with the cleanliness of the equipment, there was also a new standard when it came to the temperature at which the sausages were being smoked. The family recipe called for the sausages to be smoked at a specific temperature. The USDA regulations required the sausages to be smoked at 140 degrees Fahrenheit or 60 degrees Celsius. Stewart would say that this demand was totally unnecessary, that they had been smoking their sausages at that temperature for years without a problem. Stewart insisted that changing the smoking temperature would cause the sausages to shrink in size and then he would in turn have to sell them for a lower price but he was going to have to comply if he wanted to continue producing sausages. Also, the requirements for the smoker that Stewart utilized in the factory had changed as well, as the one he was using was outdated and antiquated and needed to be replaced with a more contemporary piece of equipment. Don Pardini had been an inspector for the USDA for many years. As a matter of fact, He had been assigned to inspect Santos Linguisa's sausage factory in the past, back when it was still being run by Tweedy. And according to Don, he had not a problem with him. He was easy to deal with, he was friendly, always willing to stay in compliance, and not only that, he went above and beyond to make sure that there were no violations in his factory. He took a great deal of pride in the family business. As I said earlier, Their livelihood and their reputation all relied on the factory and producing excellent sausage. Big shoes to fill, for sure. And Stewart would always struggle to do so. But for now, Stewart decided to bring his factory into compliance so he could reopen. He had the factory and the equipment cleaned, and upon reinspection, Don Pardini was satisfied. He gave him a positive report. And he thanked him for being willing to work with him in taking care of the violations. But Stuart was still angry. And instead of a handshake and parting ways nicely, Stuart grabbed his camera and took a picture of Don. And he told him that he was full of it and demanded that he get off the premises and to not come back. But here's the thing. Stuart was subject to daily inspections and it was deemed necessary based on the violations that he was cited for. Because he refused to allow the inspectors back onto the property or inside the factory, this meant that if he continued to make and sell linguisa sausage, he would be doing so illegally. And this is when Don had to take Stewart's case to the next level within the USDA from inspection to compliance. And this is when Jean Hillary would become involved. Stewart's case was assigned to her as she had just been promoted to the position of compliance officer. When Jean was handed Stewart's case, she had absolutely no idea how serious it actually was. Despite knowing the situation with the inspectors 
and Stewart having grown increasingly worse in the weeks and months following the orders to shut down operations. There wasn't anything about it that concerned Jean. She had no reservations about dealing with Stewart. She just figured he was kind of difficult. A stubborn businessman. That's not uncommon. So when Dawn handed the case off to Jean, her confidence that she would and could take care of it left him confident that she could take care of the issue. So in June of 2000, Jean was sent to investigate Santo Sanguisa without Stewart's knowledge. And when she got there, she came to find that despite the fact that Stewart was ordered to shut down his factory until he brought the place into compliance, he had resumed operations without the proper authorization to do so. He was having shipments of meat delivered and it was clear that there was activity going on inside the factory. The troubles Stewart was having with the USDA was wreaking havoc on his financial situation as every time he was forced to shut down, he was losing money and Stewart was going deeper and deeper into debt trying to keep the business afloat. Even operating the factory illegally wasn't helping pull the business out of the red. Around the same time as Jean was preparing to visit Santos Linguisa factory, Stewart had posted a large sign on the front of the factory. It read, To all of our great customers, the USDA is coming into our plant, harassing my employees and me, making it impossible to make our great product. Gee, if all meat plants could be in business for 79 years without one complaint, the meat inspectors would have no jobs. Therefore, we are taking legal action against them. Jean decided that she needed to speak to Stuart in person. So on June 19, 2000, she visited the factory, and she was met by a receptionist that he had just hired to work in the front office, a young woman named Brooke Silverglide. And Brooke was not friendly or welcoming at all when Jean came in looking to speak to Stuart. He had apparently woven this whole narrative about the government, meaning the USDA, and that they were harassing him. He kept all the letters and emails that he received from compliance officers and used them to bolster his stories of harassment. And he had told Brooke all about this and showed her the letters and the emails. So she was pretty convinced that the government was targeting Stewart. So when Jean showed up and asked to speak to Stewart, she got a cold reception from Brooke, who lied to her and told her that Stuart wasn't there. But Jean wasn't about to be blown off by this receptionist. She told her that she knew he was there and demanded to speak to him at once. Remember Brooke, she will reappear in our story a little bit later on. Stuart finally came out from a back office and he was very aggressive right off the bat. He got in Jean's face he began cursing at her, hurling insults and threats that she is trespassing and that she is bothering his staff and his customers. Undeterred, she continued with her visit to the factory. All the while, Stuart was verbally attacking her and the USDA. Fortunately, she brought with her a state of California meat safety officer, a gentleman by the name of Earl Willis. Earl intervened as Stuart continued to yell and curse at Jean, wanting to try to defuse the situation. He tried to explain why they were there and to get him to see that this wasn't really something 
to get all that bent out of shape about. The violations were not a big deal and that they were easy to fix. Stewart just had to do it. Stewart at the moment appeared to calm down a little bit. He would even end up exchanging a handshake with Earl. It's been speculated that Stewart, already not liking being told what to do, really didn't like being told what to do by a woman, which is perhaps why he managed to calm down and seemed to respond more favorably to Earl than to Jean. Jean and Earl continued on with their inspection, and it became quite clear that Stewart was indeed producing sausage, and he was doing so without authorization from the USDA. They could see that there was fresh sausage that had just been made after Stewart had been explicitly told to halt all productions. He didn't care. He was going to keep doing what he was doing, to hell with the USDA as far as he was concerned. The demand for Santos Languisa was so high, Stewart had no intentions of stopping, nor did he have any intentions of changing either. They'd been producing their secret family recipe linguisa since 1921 without a problem. The ones with the problem was the government, not his sausage factory. The following day, Tuesday, June 20, 2000, Jean continued her investigation into Santos linguisa from her office, working out a plan on what to do next about the belligerent, self-proclaimed sausage king. She was going through some of the factory's recent records, looking at shipping logs, searching for evidence that Stewart is indeed manufacturing, packaging, selling, and shipping sausages, and in doing so, with direct orders to shut down production, is in violation of federal law. Everything he is making, while not under inspection by the USDA, is illegal. She found a stack of shipping receipts that Stewart was indeed shipping uninspected meat across the United States, and this is considered to be a very serious threat to public health, and it was a very serious concern to Jean as well. It worried her very much that someone could potentially become very sick, possibly even die, if Stewart was producing sausages that did not meet their standards. This was a tremendous burden for Jean to carry on her shoulders. She was preparing to return to Santos Linguisa factory the following day, Wednesday, June 21st, 2000. Stewart himself was keeping busy as well. Remember, he had it in his mind that this was a full-blown governmental conspiracy against him. And Stewart made no secret of the fact that he despised the USDA inspectors and compliance officers. He had confided in a few people close to him what he'd like to do to them. And it kind of gave everyone a glimpse of Stewart's mindset. He talked about the inspectors drowning in a vat of secret sauce in the factory. He spoke about the inspectors frequently, using profanity, spewing threats towards anyone that he viewed as trespassing on his property. And he kept several firearms locked in his desk drawer in his office. In an effort to try and prove that he was being harassed by the USDA meat inspectors and compliance officers, that same day on June 20th, Stewart spent the better part of the day installing surveillance cameras in pretty much every room and in every corner of the factory. 
He wanted to document the perceived harassment. He felt as though the inspectors were overstepping their bounds and going beyond what he felt was legal. And he knew that they would be coming back very soon. Stewart also felt as times were changing, not only were superstores like Walmart and Costco causing the little guys like himself to shutter their businesses, but the government bureaucracy and red tape were facilitating the superstore takeover, making it virtually impossible for small businesses like his to continue to operate with any measure of success. This was all an agenda that had nothing to do with health, safety, or product quality but rather a plot to squash small businesses. And remember how I mentioned that Stewart had ran for mayor of San Leandro? Well, that was the basis of his platform, that the average working business person was being pushed out by big government, and he wanted to affect change from the office of mayor by taking on big business and big government. You see, Stewart did not only have the USDA breathing down his neck, he also had building code enforcement on his back as well, because over the years, he had made several structural renovations to the factory, none of which he obtained a permit for. The local police department, he believed, were also harassing him because they were constantly ticketing his vehicles that they said he was parking illegally. So basically, Stewart, his life had become an unrelenting barrage of government agencies prying into every aspect of his life, professionally and personally. But if you ask me, Stuart Alexander strikes me as the kind of person who wanted to take shortcuts in life. He wanted to do things the easy way, the lazy way, and he could not and would not be bothered by anyone telling him to do otherwise. And anyone who tried to, he took as a personal attack and insult and he would push back with anger and violent outbursts in order to intimidate them into leaving him alone. And remember towards the beginning of the story, I mentioned that Stewart had faced assault charges when he beat up his 75-year-old neighbor? Well, what led to that was the fact that Stewart lived in what was a very pleasant neighborhood. Beautiful homes, well-manicured lawns, Everybody's house was kept up quite nicely, except, of course, for Stewart's. His yards, both front and back, were described as looking like junkyards. And his neighbors did not like it at all. It was quite an eyesore. One afternoon, he spotted his elderly neighbor taking pictures of his yard to turn over to city officials. So Stewart came outside and confronted him, asking him what the hell he was doing. A fight over the camera ensued and Stuart, who was about half this guy's age, ended up physically attacking the old man. This incident would come back to bite Stuart in the butt when he decided to run for mayor. The local media did a little bit of digging and it didn't take long for them to uncover this unflattering incident in Stuart's background. And once they reported it, any chances of winning his bid for mayor was ruined. The meat safety inspectors were aware of this incident in Stewart's past as well, which made several of them leery of dealing with him. But Jean Hillary, she was unaware of Stewart's past assault conviction. And it shouldn't be lost on anyone that it is a fact in all the years that Santos Linguisa's sausage factory was in business, 
nobody had ever reported becoming ill as a direct result of consuming anything produced by their factory. But Don Pardini did say that once Stewart took over, he did cite violations that he had never seen while Tweedy was in charge. Things like some of the meat having gone bad, turning rancid. So he was certain it was only a matter of time before someone would get sick from Santos Linguisa. In the days and weeks leading up to Jean Hillary's visit to the sausage factory, Stuart Alexander had become a man obsessed. He began to feel the pressure that things were closing in on him. And he was already one angry man. And his anger was growing exponentially. He was tormented by Jean's investigation into him. And with each passing day, he was becoming more and more desperate. And his hatred for the USDA inspectors had reached a boiling point. He began writing emails, imagining the various ways he would like to kill the inspectors, and he also told several people that he wanted to kill them. And numerous people who worked with Stewart at the factory witnessed him breaking down into tears, unable to cope with the havoc he felt the inspectors were causing his business. And this was unusual for Stewart, because he was the kind of person who kept his feelings and emotions bottled up inside. Late into the evening of Tuesday, June 20th, into the early morning hours of Wednesday, June 21st, Stewart sat in his office, in front of his computer, completely consumed and obsessing over the impending visit from the USDA inspectors. On the afternoon of Wednesday, June 21st, 2000, Jean was making her way back to Santos Linguisa Sausage Factory to confront Stewart with the evidence that she uncovered of him having illegally shipped sausages across state lines. But she was not going to go alone. She brought with her three others, two California state meat officers, Earl Willis, who had gone with her on the previous visit, and Bill Shaleen, as well as Tom Quadros, who was with the USDA. What they were intending to do was ask Stewart about the shipping receipts that showed that he was sending sausages out of state to take his statement and then have him sign it and they'd be on their way. But you know, that wasn't going to be the end of the investigation. That would only be the beginning. Stewart knew he was in for it. When the four of them arrived at approximately 2 p.m. that afternoon, Stewart wasn't there. They did speak to one of the factory employees a butcher named Joe. He showed the four of them around the plant and they were able to see that there was definitely fresh sausage being produced and packaged. And not only that, they were all marked with the official USDA inspected labels, which were obviously fake because Stewart had not complied with the inspectors whatsoever. They'd become exasperated with Stewart's wanted disregard for their authority continually breaking the law, making sausage illegally, and now using fake inspection labels. And on top of this, he wasn't even there so they could speak to them. So they decided that they were going to wait, but they were also going to call and have all of his product confiscated. They needed to shut this place down immediately. 
They needed to compel Stewart to halt production until he complied with regulations and corrected their violations. After about an hour and a half of waiting, the inspectors were just about ready to give up and leave, but Earl Willis suggested that they give it a few more minutes. They've already wasted all this time. He didn't want it to be all for nothing. And within just a couple of minutes, Stuart finally arrived. He marched directly towards Jean and got in her face again. He demanded to know what she was doing on his property, and he told her that she had absolutely no business being in his factory and yelled at her to get out, and he stormed off. The four of them stood there for a while, trying to decide what their next move was going to be. But what they didn't do was leave, as Stuart had demanded. At least one or two of the men were becoming kind of nervous about the situation, but ultimately it was Jane who was in charge of this, as this was her case, despite the fact that of the four of them, she had the least experience on the job, as the others had been working in compliance for decades. And Jean, even though her colleagues were obviously nervous, she was steady, and she was just as stubborn as Stuart Alexander could be. She was not going to allow him to continue to thumb his nose at their authority, and she did not feel or perhaps did not consider the potential for things to escalate beyond Stuart's verbal tirades. After talking over what they were going to do next, they decided it might be best if they contacted the San Leandro Police Department and requested their presence at the scene. They felt as though the situation with Stuart was likely to escalate. So Tom Quadro stepped outside and made the phone call to 911, but it was considered to be a routine, non-emergency call, so there was no urgency on their part to arrive at the factory and they never would while in his office contemplating his next move Stewart also made a call to the San Leandro Police Department to report that he had trespassers on his property but his call too was treated as a non-emergency and no police would ever arrive as a result of his call either He hung up the phone and came back to where the three inspectors were all still standing inside. Tom was still outside in the driveway waiting for police to arrive. Stuart had his camera with him again and he began taking pictures of each of the inspectors. When he took Bill and Earl's pictures, they refused to look directly into the camera. They were either embarrassed or they didn't know what to make of Stuart's behavior. But when he pointed his camera at Jean, she posed and smiled. And this made sense to those who knew her. Even if Jean was nervous or anxious in a moment, she did what she could to make sure that it didn't show. She would just kind of grin and bear it. She was the main focus of Stuart's tantrums. And if she feared him, she did not want him to see it or feel as though he had that over her. So she smiled. I obviously don't know what went through Stuart's mind when he snapped that photo of her and she smiled for the camera. But I bet that it didn't help, considering the state of mind that he was in at that point. Remember, he had been up all night, angry and obsessing over Jean's case against his factory. It was eating away at him. 
He saw Jean as the reason why his business and his finances were in shambles. Because she just would not leave him alone so he could operate his factory. After taking their pictures, Stuart stormed off again. As soon as Stuart went back into his office, Earl began telling the others that this is not looking like it's going to end well and he was becoming increasingly uncomfortable being inside that factory. Stuart's temper, his yelling, the taking of the pictures, left all of them somewhat shaken. Earl was pretty sure Stuart was on the verge of snapping. To him, looking at Stuart, he could see it in his eyes that the man was becoming unhinged. He told Jean, We don't know what he's doing in his office right now. What he's thinking or planning. He could be in there obtaining a weapon, possibly a gun. And it would be best if they saw their way out. Risking their lives over the sausage factory simply wasn't worth it. But Jean saw things differently. She welcomed a confrontation with Stuart. And if he comes back with a gun, well, hey, that's a very serious criminal charge, sure to land him in prison. They're federal officers, and pulling a gun on them is a crime taken very seriously. Jean was determined to stand her ground. She was not going to allow herself to be forced to back down by Stuart Alexander, period. In order to calm Earl's fears, she suggested that he go ahead and wait outside for police and to send Tom back inside, which he promptly did. Incidentally, this day was supposed to be Earl's day off. Meanwhile, Brooke Silverglide, remember her? Stewart's receptionist I mentioned earlier? Well, as Stewart was in his office contemplating his next move, Brooke just got back to the factory following her break. She struck me as being kind of young and impressionable, but either way, she was completely sold into Stewart's government conspiracy narrative. So when she arrived on the premises, the inspectors could hear her yelling in the office when speaking to Stewart, questioning what they were doing there. Why are they back here again? She can't believe this. Whatever. She was totally on Stuart's side 100% and felt like these inspectors were there again as a part of the orchestrated plot to target and harass her boss. And she knew Stuart kept his guns in the desk drawers in the office. So she offered up a solution to the trespassing. Why don't you take one of your guns, demand that they get off your property immediately like they do on TV and in the movies, and fire a warning shot into the ceiling. She told Stuart, you ask them to leave and they aren't leaving. So exercise your right to protect your property from trespassing. Her words seemed to have flipped a switch in Stuart's mind. His thoughts went straight to his guns. It was about 3.30 in the afternoon The inspectors had been there for an hour and a half. Earl Willis had stepped outside to wait for police while Tom Quadros had gone back inside to join Jean and Bill. 
They still needed to get Stewart's statement and signature regarding their investigation into the factory being operated illegally. The police by this time still are not headed to the factory for this civil standby call as they had no reason to believe that the dispute at Santos Linguisa Sausage Factory was urgent and they would never show up for the call. As Jean, Bill, and Tom were standing inside the factory talking, they had absolutely no idea that Stuart was inside his office, unlocking his desk drawer, and arming himself with at least two handguns. Stuart Alexander had just reached the end of his rope. The meat inspectors and compliance officers, as far as he was concerned, were doing everything that they could to annihilate his family's business, his livelihood, his family name, his reputation, his standing in the community, everything that he has built his life on. They were trying to destroy it. Santos Linguisa was the very essence of who Stuart Alexander was, and he was not going to allow that to happen. He intended to defend his family legacy from these people who are trying to bring him down, and he had had enough. For Jean, though, she did not or could not see the danger, the rage that was about to explode. The reason? Well, this was Stuart Alexander's normal. He was always mad. He was always yelling, always raging and stomping around the factory. This was par for the course when it came to her dealings with Stuart. So she just wasn't worried. Just after 3.30 p.m. on June 21, 2000, just as Jean, Bill, and Tom were continuing to linger in the factory, waiting, discussing what they were going to do next, Stuart suddenly emerged from his office. The three of them saw him approaching, but they had no idea that he was now armed with at least two loaded handguns. He took one of the guns, pointed it at the ceiling, and he took Brooks' advice and fired a warning shot into the air. But just as quickly as he did that, he took aim and shot Bill, Tom, and Jean, dropping each one of them down to the ground. They never saw it coming. The three of them laid there, bleeding to death on the factory floor. Remembering that there was a fourth compliance officer on the premises, Stuart began to search the factory inside then outside looking for Earl, intent on gunning him down as well. As soon as Earl saw Stuart coming towards him, he immediately began running to get away from him. Stuart started firing at him as they were running, all of his shots unable to find their target. As he chased Earl, he was yelling at him, calling him a thief, of course, which wasn't true but Stuart needed to say something to justify his use of deadly force, to justify why he was chasing a man down the street trying to kill him. Eventually, Stuart emptied his weapon. He was unable to shoot Earl Willis. He had gotten away with his life by ducking into a nearby bank. Also, a portion of this chase was captured on a camcorder by a neighboring shopkeeper, Stuart gave up the chase and began heading towards the factory to go back inside. These gunshots 
which began at 3.34 p.m., would prompt a number of 911 calls. And these ones would finally bring the San Leandro police to the scene. Brooke, who was present when all of this went down, managed to slip out the back entrance. She did not do anything to try and render any first aid to the three shooting victims. She did not call 911. She did not call police. She did not call for paramedics. She just left. And of those who were shot, it is known for a fact that at least Jean was still alive. She was still moving. She could have been saved. Jean was shot in the lower back, and the wound may have caused her lower body paralysis. But at the time, it wasn't necessarily life-threatening if help was summoned. There is a very real possibility that she could have been saved. But when she heard Stuart return to the scene, she began to lay very still and pretended to be dead. But Stuart wanted to ensure that each of them were dead and to make sure that they would not be coming back. He reloaded his weapon, he stood over each of the three fallen compliance officers, and one by one, he fired one more bullet into each of their heads. Jean Hillary, 56 years old, Tom Quadros, 52 years old, and Bill Shalene, 57 years old. All three of them were not only parents, they were all grandparents as well. And they were all dead. And the reason why we are able to discuss Jean's, Tom's, and Bill's final moments with such great detail and clarity is because the entire incident was captured on Stewart's brand new surveillance system that he had just installed the previous day. There was no audio, only video, but it was very clear and easy to see exactly what had happened inside that factory, exactly what order everything happened in, and exactly what time it all took place. I did look around the internet to see if the video was available, and... I didn't think I'd be able to find it. If I had, I probably would have watched it, but I didn't, which is probably for the best anyway. It was graphic and very chilling according to those who did see it. I don't know if the video is anywhere in some dark corner of the web. It probably is, but I usually don't dig any deeper than a Google search for stuff like this. I mean, I'm kind of a looky-loo to an extent, just out of curiosity. And some of my dreamers don't care for that stuff, and I get it. I don't like looking at crime scene photos or autopsy photos, though. That's a hard pass for me. Anyway, once Stuart was certain that they were all dead, he walked out to the front of the factory. He locked the front door and pulled down the rolling gate with the three compliance officers still laying on the floor inside. And he just took a seat. The first officer finally arrived at the scene at 3.37 p.m. Officer Richard Cahill. Officer Cahill and Stewart had known each other since childhood. They were friends. They went to school together. 
Cahill had visited the factory several times before, never for police business, always just to stop in to say hi. As he walked up, Stewart said to him, I'm the one you're looking for. Cahill, just coming to understand what exactly had just occurred inside the Santos Linguisa sausage factory, placed Stewart under arrest for suspicion of murder. The news of the sausage factory murders quickly spread across the community, across the state, and across the country. Even though the names of the victims had yet to be released publicly, the media quickly put it together that at least one of the victims was Jean Hillary because she was the only female compliance officer in the state of California. The media descended upon the factory, and one by one, Jean, Tom, and Bill were taken out of the building on stretchers, in body bags, in full view of the media cameras. But the media at the time was oddly biased in favor of Stuart Alexander. He was being portrayed as a good and honest businessman who was being targeted and harassed by the government who gunned down three federal agents who were leading the harassment campaign against him. He was just this hardworking guy, the common, everyday working family man, operating the legendary and storied Santos Linguisa Sausage Factory with big government breathing down his neck, trying to take him down. Now, whether or not you buy into that narrative, I suppose it depends on how you look at it. But I've kind of been through something not exactly this bad or this serious, but well, my mom actually been through something like this. It's a long story, but she was having some work done in her front yard when a code enforcement officer came by and ordered her to halt the work immediately. She was doing something that was in violation of city codes. So what she ended up doing, and if you've known me to talk about my mom, then this should not come as a surprise at all. She told the worker that she had hired to come back on Sunday evening to finish the work, which he did, because he doesn't care. He's getting paid, right? And this caused the city officials to just rain down a flurry of code violations against her. Every single week, my mom was receiving fines and letters and threats of jail time if she continued to refuse to comply. And she, too, acted like a victim, that she was being targeted. And to be honest, to an extent, she was, sort of, because there were plenty of houses throughout the city with similar, if not identical, violations, yet none of them were being compelled to correct any of them in the manner in which my mom was. Even two houses up from hers had the exact same violations, yet my mom was the only one being forced to remove hers. And I do believe it's because she defied a direct order to halt the work being done in her yard. I advised her not to do it, but she basically told me that I was a coward for wanting her to cave into the city government. So at that point, I just threw my hands up and stopped trying to get the city off her back. She felt as though this was her property and nobody had the right to tell her what to do or not to do. And she thought she could fight City Hall and win. She ended up having to take everything out, 
some flower beds that she had built, some decorative rocks that she had put in place. Because this was during the drought in California and all the grass had died. And these things weren't unreasonable, but everything in the parkway had to be organic material, according to city codes. No pavers, no brickwork, no decorative stones. And ever since, every single time any kind of worker or landscaper appears at my mom's house, a code enforcement vehicle is dispatched to drive by to see what work she's trying to have done. Anyway, like I said, my mom perceived herself as a victim, just as Stuart had, and they both were guilty of poking the bear. You just have to comply with the law. And I told my mom, if you really feel truly harassed by the government, that could very well be a violation of your constitutional rights, which, in that case, you need to go through the appropriate channels in dealing with that, perhaps file a harassment lawsuit. Otherwise, my mom and Stuart should have both saved themselves the headache and just complied. Stuart Alexander would stand trial for the murders of Jean, Tom, and Bill on April 27, 2004. He faced three counts of first-degree murder with special circumstances. Though there are several special circumstances, such as using a firearm and multiple deaths, but the one that took precedence at trial was the fact that they were federal agents killed in the line of duty. He would be facing the death penalty if convicted. The video surveillance of the killings was shown to the court, but was not made public. In a written transcript of the contents of the video, it is shown that Jean was the only one of the three inspectors who was still showing signs of life after the shootings. The shootings of the three victims took exactly 12 seconds. He then turned and headed towards the exit, and it was at that point his face was clearly visible in the video. Then the video showed Stewart returning to the three victims lying on the ground, at which point Stewart fired the final three shots into each of their heads. Then he calmly walked out of the building. Police had also come under fire in the wake of the murders as well, especially from the families of the victims. Where were they when Tom Quadros was calling, asking for a civil standby? Tom, in his 911 call, said, I am a federal compliance officer, and we need assistance with a potentially irate shop owner. The dispatcher told him that they would have an officer there as soon as they could. One minute later, 911 received a call from Stewart as well, asking for police officers to escort the inspectors off his property. In his call, he said, I got some meat inspectors on my property. I want them removed off here right now. At least one officer who was in the area at the time reported that he was attending to another issue at the time the call came in for a civil assist. But beyond that, he would not provide any further details. In an effort to spare Stewart the possibility of the death penalty, the defense was first going to try to go for a plea of insanity. And if that wasn't going to work, his attorneys would try to argue that this incident was not an act of premeditated murder. In other words, Stewart had not planned any of this. They brought in some of the emails and letters that Stewart had been receiving and tried to illustrate that he was being pushed over the edge and that he committed these acts of murder in a rage. 
that all of this came about because of the unrelenting harassment on the part of the inspectors. His attorney accused the victims of taunting Stewart, provoking him, all of which caused him to snap. And all the while, they knew that he was a ticking time bomb, stating, They knew he was volatile. They knew he was upset. They knew he was on the edge. On October 19, 2004, Stuart Alexander was convicted on three counts of murder in the first degree. Two months later, the jury recommended that Stuart's punishment should be death by lethal injection. On February 15, 2005, Stuart was sentenced to death and was sent to California's San Quentin State Prison. But just over 10 months after he was sentenced, Stuart Alexander died on December 27, 2005 of a pulmonary embolism. He was 44 years old. And he was the last of the three Alexander sons to die. Remember I mentioned his oldest brother died in that motorcycle accident in 1977? Well, his younger brother, Stanley, preceded him in death as well, passing away in 1995 at the age of 31. So yeah, Stewart's mother, Shirley, outlived her husband and all three of her sons. And remember our good old friend, Brooke Silverglide? Well, she was named in a wrongful death lawsuit filed by Bill Shaleen's daughter. The suit contended that Brooke was the one who encouraged Stewart to fire warning shots at the USDA inspectors, that she aggravated the situation, knowing how angry Stewart was at the compliance officers. She knew Stewart was armed and potentially dangerous, and she failed to warn the inspectors that they might be in danger. Bill's daughter was awarded $245,000 in her case against Brooke, in addition to another $3 million awarded to her in her case against Stuart Alexander. And that brings our 80th episode of California Dreaming to a close. If you would like to discuss this case in more detail or any of the others that we have covered, please feel free to request and join the California Dreaming official Facebook discussion page. There, we have cultivated an amazing community of listeners and true crime aficionados who like to share their thoughts and opinions on all of the cases that we cover, as well as other podcasts that we listen to, true crime stories, other current news and events, TV shows that we enjoy, documentaries, books, whatever you find that you'd like to share please come and join us. You can also follow the show on Twitter at California pod and on Instagram at California dreaming pod and California dreaming is proudly brought to you by the orbital jigsaw network. We are a podcast production company located in Los Angeles, California with a mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to, to consistently improve upon our current roster of shows to develop new content that appeals to people all over the world and to provide a thriving community for listeners and podcasters alike. And I'm very proud to be a part of this amazing network of shows and hosts. So please visit us at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. You can find links to all of our shows, the merchandise store, and thank you guys for shopping on the merchandise store this week from the post that I put up on Facebook, our blog, 
And if you want to just email us and let us know what you think, that's our website at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. Thank you once again so much for joining me this week and every week. Until next time, sweet dreams. Hey, this is Chris, the host of Killer Jobs, the podcast that discovers the day jobs of the world's most famous serial killers. Explore how these psychopaths functioned in the real world, how murder interfered with their work, and what co-workers had to say. Killer Jobs investigates a new serial killer every Tuesday and is available on all podcast players. Hey, this is Heath. And this is Daphne. And we're the hosts of Going West, a true crime podcast. Where we discuss various murders, disappearances, and serial killers. Each week, we go into the gory details of a new case. Like episode five, which is about Dorothy Jane Scott, a single mother who was receiving threatening phone calls by a stalker and then mysteriously disappeared. Or the terrifying case of Dayton Leroy Rogers, the most prolific serial killer in Oregon history. You can find us on our Instagram at Going West Podcast or check out our website, goingwestpodcast.com. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Stitcher, and Spotify. So make sure to check out our episodes and leave a review. Everybody in the world, keep it real and stay weird. Cheerio.